All right, and so now moving on to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is such an amazing chapter. It's probably gonna be the most complex chapter to teach in a, a sweeping 30,000 foot view like this. Honestly, you could listen to a hundred sermons on this chapter and, and not scratch the surface. So there's just no way I'm going to do it justice. But the whole goal of this is to inflame your desire to want to dig in on your own. And so Revelation chapter 12 starts out with a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, it's very important. There are a lot of people, and I'm not here to throw mud on them or anything like that, that believe all of Revelation is mystified, and you can't really know what it means, and it's not literal, and, and then they'll sort of say that people that take Revelation literally say there's no signs in the book of Revelation, and these two groups typically debate a lot. Um, I think it's very important that here we're about to see a sign, and it announces that it's a sign. So if all of Revelation was spiritualized or mystified, and there's just no way of knowing what it means, then typically we'll, people will come in and you know kind of say it can mean whatever they think it means. You just get kind of lost. But when I say I take the Bible literally, I, I agree there's signs. Like it says here, a great sign appeared in heaven. But I also believe the signs are literal. They have a meaning and scripture always reveals it. I think it's actually very clear. I think it's like a parable. Uh, I think the whole Bible, in a sense, is like a parable. To the world, they can read the book of Revelation a hundred times. They're never going to get it. But to a simple child of God, you read it, and, and it, he illuminates it by the Spirit, and it actually becomes quite clear. It's not rocket science. And so it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. And I love that word sign because, you know, earlier in the book of Revelation, when it says, you know, a, a comet or, you know, a flaming mountain falls into the sea, it doesn't say there was a sign and a mountain fell into the sea. It doesn't say there was a sign and one-fourth of the world's population died, right? It just says that's what happened. That's what he actually saw. So here he sees a sign which represents a literal reality. And this is the first thing we're going to introduce you to. There's two, two or three uh, characters in this sign. The first is the woman. This woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. And on her head, she has a crown of 12 stars. Now, we can go very deep into this, but I want to keep it 30,000 foot. I'm just going to reveal it and then give you my evidence for it. I believe this is extremely clearly the nation of Israel. And you're going to see why as the chapter unfolds. But when we just talk about this specific verse, the crown of 12 stars, this woman is clothed with the sun and the moon. Go all the way back to Genesis. And this is what I love about the book of Revelation. It's tying things in. Like to understand Revelation, you have to have at least some sense of the entire redemptive plan of God. So we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. We're in the story of Joseph. And remember, Joseph is one of the 12. Remember, I just said there's 12 stars on the crown of this woman. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel from which the nation of Israel came. And he has this dream, if you remember, and it makes his brothers very jealous. And it says he had another dream and he relates it to his brothers. And he said, lo, I have another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And they instantly interpreted this as, as the, the father being the son, Jacob, the wife being the moon, and the 11 stars being the brother, which brothers, the, the other, you know, 11 brothers, which would leave Joseph as the 12th star, the, tw you know, so here you have sun, moon, 11 stars. I mean, the, 
the imagery matches up. And you can read more in Genesis 37, but if I was only using this verse, there's really nowhere else in the Bible where it's just so clear. This is talking about the 12 tribes of Israel from which the nation. So this woman is the nation. And that's why I believe they had their moon festivals even. They would celebrate the new moons as part of their worship. That wasn't pagan worship. That was given by Yahweh. And so this great sign, I believe clearly just from this one verse and Genesis 37 verse 9, it's talking about the nation of Israel. And so I love tying those two together. Now it says, and she was with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. You can read the prophet Isaiah. He, he spoke about them being in labor. It was spoken of in that way. The tribulations described as birth pains like a woman in labor, but that's for a separate reason. Look at this. So she's in labor. She's going to be giving birth. This is talking. This chapter is talking about the cosmic battle between the devil and God. You go all the way back to Genesis 3. The, the serpent, the devil, will crush the heel of the promised seed, the promised Messiah, but the Messiah will crush the devil on the head. This chapter is going all the way back in time to Satan's fall, to all the way sweeping through in this one chapter, that's why it's so rich, sweeping through the death and exaltation and resurrection and ascension of Christ, into the end times. It's like all of world history in one chapter of the Bible. So it describes this woman with child. She's crying out. She's in labor and pain to give birth. This is talking about the nation of Israel in labor, going through trouble to bring the Messiah into the world for the first time. Then another, And you'll see more about that in a second. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Once again, it's a sign. And behold, a great red dragon. Later on in the chapter, it's going to reveal what the dragon is. It's the devil and Satan. It's, it's not complex at all. So this great red dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on his head are seven diadems, or some translations say crowns. Now, three times in the book of Revelation, you see the devil with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. You then see the beast in the next chapter, the Antichrist, with seven heads, ten horns, and uh, seven crowns. Finally, you see the woman riding the beast. Same thing, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, right? And so this is a very common number that's being used. And we don't, you know, I, I really do believe I will make... Uh, hour-long sermons just on Revelation 12 uh, eventually. I really want to break this down one day. But all you need to understand right now is when we hear about seven heads and ten horns, it's talking about the ten horns are ten kings. They're ten kingdoms. They're ten rulers. When it's talking about the devil having seven heads, I believe these are seven empires that the dragon uh, has and will control. And he uses his empires to assault the children of God and to assault Christ. I mean, this is talking about, you're going to see in the context of this chapter, how the devil with his delegated limited authority on earth, satanically inspires kings to kill the children of Israel, to kill Christ, to persecute the church, and in the end times to persecute all the saints that are alive during this time. And so this is essentially talking about his rule, his authority. And when it's in the context of the devil, the dragon, I believe it's going back all the way to the beginning, to, to Babylon and Assyria, 
which is revealed in Scripture. They both persecuted the children of God. To You get into Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. You hear of Medo-Persia, Greece, uh, you know, Rome, all these different empires. And there's, there's essentially been six or so. And a seventh world kingdom is coming. It's a kingdom that tramples the whole earth. And the devil will be the head of it in a sense, but the Antichrist will rule it as the king. So that's the 30,000 foot flyover of this. I can make an entire hour long teaching on just this verse. And I, I really plan to do that one day. But for now, you just need to understand this is talking about worldly kingdoms, worldly kings, and, and satanically inspired government and, and a world government one day, right? That's what you need to understand. And it says his tail, the devil's tail. This is amazing. It's sweeping back to possibly before the earth was created now. It says the devil's tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven. It's talking about when Lucifer fell. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and he took with him one-third of the angels, and he threw them to the earth. And the dragon, it said, stood before the woman. The dragon stands before the woman who's about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Remember, the devil is a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. Now, this is true of Christ. The, the woman's child, the nation gave, uh, gave birth to Christ. You're going to see that in a second. It becomes very clear in verse 5, but I want to just camp on this verse. It's so important to understand. The devil, since his fall, he's now duped humanity into the same rebellion. The book of Revelation is how the rebellion ends. It's a glorious story, but it's explaining here that the dragon uh, literally wants to devour Christ, but it's not just Christ. It's all the people of God. He wants to kill God. He wants to kill the people of God. He wants to stop the plan of God. Why? He takes the Bible literally, just like I do, because he knows the, the seed will crush his head. Genesis 3.15, the Messiah will conquer the devil. He knows that. So from the beginning of time, he wants to stop the Messiah from being born. When he can't do that, he wants to kill the Messiah. And when he can't do that, he wants to kill his children and the nation he's coming back to, the nation of Israel, to thwart his plans. And I can show you it very clearly. In the Old Testament, right after the fall, literally within just a dozen or so chapters, I think by Genesis chapter 11, God literally drowns the entire earth in a judgment. Well, why does he do that? Because the devil satanically inspired the demons to cohabitate here. And he was trying to destroy the entire human race because God didn't necessarily have like a defined people group at the time, right? Then you fast forward. We talk about the devil here trying to devour Christ, devour her child. Fast forward, okay? You fast forward to Moses. And, and what happened right when Moses was born? The king, Pharaoh, wanted all the babies slaughtered. And so he, he sent out an edict, a decree to slaughter all the infants, and Moses was saved. God saved that line. All throughout the nation of Israel, the devil has been trying to completely wipe out that nation to the point where apparently if you study the messianic line of Christ, it, it gets to the point several times where there's only one or two people and they're like sick or almost dead. And, and that's been preached to me and now I'm preaching it to you. So we need to dig into that for ourselves. But that's always been Satan's ploy. And so that led all the way up to Christ where just like Moses, what did King Herod do? He wanted to kill 
uh, Christ. So he put out an edict to kill all the children and Christ fled just like Moses and Israel fled, right? So you see these patterns and these types of the devil pouring out his wrath and God preserving the messianic line and then preserving the Christ, God in human flesh, Jesus, and he's preserving him in this epic war is playing out and most of mankind is totally doesn't even understand it and now christ uh, the devil kills christ and he thinks he's devoured him he thinks he's won he's crushed his heel like the prophecy said and what does christ do he rises from the dead he says that was always my plan i came here to die for my bride i came here to die for my children you just fulfilled that and so he ascended he he led captivity captive triumphantly and what does the devil do now well, he tries to kill Christ's children, the church, and he tries to destroy our faith so that the promises of God are not in effect. And he has been trying vigorously the last 2,000 years to completely stomp out the Jewish race. Why? Because then Christ's prophecies are not going to come true. The word of God is going to be true, uh, proved to be false because God promised Israel that though they would be punished, he would never let them cease from being a nation. He says, if you can break my covenant with the sun and the moon, another reason the woman represents Israel, she's clothed with the sun and the moon, then you can break my covenant with the children of Israel. And when I look outside at night, I still see the moon and in the morning, the sun, and I still see the nation of Israel. And they have been, I mean, this goes from the pogroms to all manners of persecution leading up to the satanically inspired Hitler regime just 70 years ago in World War II, trying to devour the nation of Israel to nullify the promises of God. So this verse, I've camped on it for a while, but this is just an epic verse to understand. It's a, it's a, it's a cosmic battle between Christ and the devil, and Christ wins. And so it goes on to say, I hate to leave that verse. I love it so much. I'm like grasping onto it. <laughs> it says, she, it's talking about the woman, the nation of Israel, gave birth to a son. This is the first coming. It's a male child. It's, it's Jesus. Who is, this goes back to Psalm 2. If you haven't read Psalm 2 by now, you need to pause this and go read Psalm 2. Who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron? Psalm 2 and Revelation 12 both say he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. Um, they're separated by 1,100 years and the exact same words. It's amazing. And it says her child was caught up to God and his throne. Psalm 110, sit at my throne on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so then it says, you know, now Christ is in heaven and now we're fast forwarding to the tribulation and, and the devil through the antichrist is going to try and kill the nation of Israel because he knows that's where Jesus is coming back. That's going to be his people. So it says, then the woman Israel fled into the wilderness, right? Where she has a special place, a physical real place prepared by God so that she would be nourished, taken care of 1,260 days. Three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, 42 months. It's all the same. She's going to be there three and a half years. I believe it will be the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Okay? This next verse is wild. I love this connection between Revelation and Daniel. It goes on to say, you know what? Let me show you Daniel first. I changed my mind. Let's, let's just peer back into the Old Testament thousands of years ago. This is written like six, 700 years before Revelation is written, 500 years or so 
before Christ is born. It says it's talking about a time of trouble such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. There will be a time of tribulation, a brutal, horrifying time such as never was and never will be, Jesus said in Matthew 24. Same thing in Daniel 12. It says at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, you're going to hear about the book in Revelation 13 will be rescued. It's talking about a time of horrible persecution and tribulation and distress, such as there's never been. Uh, Jesus said it was so bad, it was worse than anything that's ever happened. That means it's going to be worse than the flood. And, and at that time, look at what it says. It says, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. I get chills like God is sending his angel, Michael. Fast forward all the way back now to, to Revelation, and it says, There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. See, this is the same, that's how we know. Scripture interprets Scripture. If you're asking yourself, how do you know when this happens? See, right here, it doesn't say exactly when it happens. Daniel 12 reveals the when this reveals the what. So much of eschatology to really get a full, clear picture, as clear as the Holy Spirit will allow it, right, is to just tie together spiritual things with spiritual things, scripture with scripture. This is what I love to do. And so there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels wage war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And it says they were not strong enough. The devil loses. There was no longer a place for them in heaven. Now, it's very important to understand this. The devil is in heaven right now. Not in the very heaven of heavens with Almighty God. He's in the galaxies. He's in the universe. If you look at the book of Job, he he goes in. Jesus called to, to the presence of God, and he's talking with him about Job. He's accusing him. If you look at what Jesus said, he's the little G, God of this world. And so he is in heaven. He's there right now. He's in the universe. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so... He, he, he's in the universe, he's in the galaxies, he can also come to earth, he is in the planets, his demonic realm is all up there, and so we don't know it specifically, but we know we don't war against flesh and blood, but against what? Uh, spiritual forces of evil, where? In the heavenly places, and so that's where they are now. But there's no longer a place found for them. Michael the archangel wins this battle and he casts them to earth. Watch this. It says the great dragon. Now remember, it said there was a sign, a great dragon. It says was thrown down. And then it says the serpent of old, the garden, who is called the devil. I mean, it's the, the scripture interprets scripture. It's so clear. It's not mystified. A lot of people come along and want to tell Christians like you really don't know. The revelation is so complex. I believe it's straightforward. The dragon is the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. The whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. That's what the New Testament says. He was thrown down to the earth. So the entire earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the level of demonic activity, if right now they fill the universe, imagine when they're confined to just the earth. And the Bible says the restrainer, the spirit of God, won't restrain the wickedness of men. Men will be demonically uh, possessed, men will be demonically um, oppressed, men will be just falling apart, apart from the grace and love of Christ. And so then he hears a loud voice in heaven saying, 
now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, this is so awesome, of his Messiah have come. It's time for the Messiah to end the rebellion. This is the culmination. Go read Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the, the, the promised seed, the Messiah, will crush the serpent's head. Christ's authority and kingdom has come. And who's it come for? The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And this next verse is so important just for our edification. How do we conquer the devil? How do we overcome? It says they overcame him. How? Because of the blood of the lamb. You know, the devil accuses me all the time. And sometimes he's right because I sin. I mean, he's not always wrong. Sometimes he's wrong and he falsely accuses me. And uh, sure, but a lot of times he's right. I'm a sinner. How do I overcome that? How do I overcome that accusation when I sin? And he says, you can't be a child of God. You're a sinner. Sometimes I disagree. You're right. My Lord's paid the price. It's, it's his blood. He, he, he paid the price. Go, go talk to him about it. He, he knows me. He knows I love him. He, he's washed me with his spirit. He, he bled for me. He, it's God who justifies, who condemns. So you overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and then also the word of their testimony. I've been saved. Something has happened in my life. And it happened when I realized that Jesus was God and he died for the ungodly. That's my testimony. I didn't do anything. That's what I know. That's all I know. That's what saved me. It's the blood of the lamb. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. The Christian has true joy. Now, I know not everybody feels this way and I don't want to upset anyone's conscience, but I can't wait to die. I, I, I can't wait to die. From the day I've been born again. I, I can't wait to see Jesus, this God who became a man and died for me. This world has nothing for me now. There's nothing in it that interests me. Uh, I, I can't wait to be with Jesus. I'm not suicidal. I was suicidal before I was saved. I would never do that now. I love life in a sense comparatively to what it was, but I, I would rather be with Jesus. And so we don't love our lives even when faced with death, and that's all a gift based on the sacrifice and grace of the Lamb. And so that's how you overcome. I think that's so important. And so this devil is thrown down, and it says, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This will be all the Old Testament saints, all the tribulation martyrs, anyone who's died up until this time, but there will still most likely be, well, definitely be saints on the earth. And so it says, Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. Don't you understand? This is terrifying. We're not supposed to blaspheme the devil. He has great wrath. There's a fear and a respect there. And so it's, it's, he's, a, he's a, an anointed cherub angel. He comes down with great wrath. If it weren't for Christ, we are hopeless against the devil. He has great wrath because he knows he only has a short time. Well, how does he know he only has a short time? Well, he takes the Bible literally. He's going to know he has three and a half years or less, depending on what he knows. He knows the Bible better than me and you put together. He's the greatest theologian in the universe. It's not by, just by knowledge that we're saved. We're born again by grace and we grow in knowledge. But the devil has knowledge we couldn't even dream of and he hates God. So he comes down with wrath. He will be pouring out his wrath as God is pouring out his as well. And so when the dragon, the devil, saw he was thrown to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He persecuted Israel. Jesus came according to the flesh of the line of David to the children of Israel. So there is an interpretation that the woman is the church, but I just see the woman as Israel. I think it's extremely clear. 
He persecutes the woman who gave birth to the male child. But look at this. This is beautiful. It says, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman if, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, from the presence of the Antichrist, from the presence of the devil. And so just like the devil took on the form of a snake, I believe when it says presence of a serpent, the devil is going to take on the form of Antichrist. Even though the Antichrist will be a person, so serpent could mean the Antichrist there. But bottom line, it's the devil. Even when we look at the Antichrist, we're looking at the devil in human flesh in a sense. And so they're all on one side, right? And so these two wings of the great eagle, go back and read Exodus and, and read Deuteronomy. And he talks about how when the Israelites, another reason why it's clearly talking about Israel, when the Israelites came out of, of um, Egypt and, and Pharaoh was like a type of Antichrist and were all these miraculous judgments, God says in the Old Testament, I bore you on eagle's wings. I supernaturally protected you in thousands of different ways. I mean, can you imagine being there? Not just going through the Red Sea. Imagine when hail like the size of a car is falling down, killing all the Egyptians thousands of years ago, and you're sitting outside enjoying the sun and enjoying the show. I mean, that's, that's insane. Like God bore them on eagle's wings. And so he says, two wings of the great eagle, God is going to supernaturally protect the, this, this nation. Zechariah seems to say it's going to be one-third of the Jews at the time. Uh, the other two-thirds of the Jews, they're going to be aligned with the Antichrist. They're going to fall for his schemes. And so uh, the Antichrist is going to want to kill this remnant, this, this large portion. One-third of the Jews today would be about five million people. So it said the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Now it says the serpent poured water. What does that mean? We, the woman being swept away with the flood. Now remember, this is a sign. Okay, this is a, this is a sign. It hasn't gone back to like 100% literal yet, right? So the serpent's the devil. What is pouring water out of his mouth? Well, in the context, we're talking about the Antichrist here. And so one incredibly illuminating text of scripture that I'm going to bring up in a second is, uh, you know, what? I'll bring it up right now. Let me show you first here. Let me show you this next verse first. Uh, I believe, let me tell you what I believe this is and then prove it from scripture. So he, the, the, the water rushing out of the devil's mouth, I believe this is an army coming after the nation of Israel or a group of troops and he's trying to slaughter this nation. Then it says the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now, the dragon poured this out. It came through the serpent. I believe the Antichrist will send a massive army to just slaughter these, these 5 million plus Jews or whoever they are at the time. And so I think Daniel 9 is a very illuminating verse because in the context, it's talking about the Antichrist. I'm not going to explain the whole verse, but the most clear interpretation is talking about the Antichrist, right? And it says, um, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's talking about the Romans sieging and destroying the temple in 70 AD, which Christ prophesied. Well, the prince who is to come, I believe, and many others, that that's the Antichrist, that the final kingdom that tramples the earth and the Antichrist rules will come, be, be the prince who is to come will be a revived Roman empire, okay? But I believe the prince who is to come is very clearly 
um, uh, the Antichrist. And what does he do? It says, its end will come with a flood. Well, the end of what? Just like the devil pours forth a flood. It was the end of the sanctuary. And if you read history, the temple, a swarm of, of human beings flooded it and, and killed everyone in the Jerusalem temple. And so its end will come like a flood. And then it says, even to the end, there will be war. So it doesn't say their end will come with a flood and there will be water everywhere. Their end will come with a flood, the end of the temple in 70 AD, a rush of, they sieged it and they were really holed up in the temple. And one day it was like the dam burst and the Romans just flooded in. And so even to the end, there will be war. Okay. And so then also, right, it says God opened or the earth opens up its mouth and swallows this flood. Well, look in Numbers chapter 16. There was a rebellion against Moses thousands of years ago. It's an awesome story. Read number 16. And so literally the sons of Korah rebelled. And Moses said, if you die any normal death, if you get cancer right now, if you die any normal death, know like the Lord hasn't, isn't on my side. I, it hasn't sent me essentially. But if today the Lord does something new, then you know. And the earth opened up and swallowed up tens of thousands of the sons of Korah they went down alive into hell and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So you see the verbiage throughout the Bible where I think it makes sense that the, the Antichrist is sending an army, a flood against the children of Israel. Okay, that's it's pouring out of, of the mouth of the, of the dragon, out of the mouth of the serpent. And God opens up the earth and, and he swallows up that army. I think it's pretty straightforward, but I understand if you have a different interpretation. Now to finish up chapter 12, it says the dragon was enraged with the woman. The devil's now enraged with Israel because he couldn't conquer her during the tribulation. And so what does he do? Because he knows, he takes the Bible literally, he knows she's protected, he can't touch her. He goes off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus this will begin the description of the greatest persecution to Gentiles, Jews, anyone who keeps the commandments of God, anyone who holds the testimony of Jesus. A massive persecution through the Antichrist kingdom is going to start in Revelation uh, chapter 13. Before I do, though, this is just such a rich chapter. I want to give you a little homework and, and just <laughs> little homework and just finish with a few Bible verses from the prophet Isaiah just while we finish up. So this whole chapter is a sign. It's figure. It's a real literal sign pointing to this cosmic ancient battle between the devil and God. Uh, culminating through Christ and, and the tribulation, all these glorious things we're talking about. Well, the prophet Isaiah, if you read Isaiah 24 to 28, that's your homework. Read Isaiah 24 to 28 when you get time. Many people, myself included, have called that the apocalypse, the revelation in Isaiah. You can actually see, I broke down Isaiah 24 um, in a video called the apocalypse in Isaiah. You can search that on my channel. But if you, if you read Isaiah 24 to 27, I'm going to bring up Isaiah 26 and 27, just two quick verses. I want you to understand all the context of Isaiah 24, 25, 26, 27. It's judgment, the tribulation, the salvation of Israel, the resurrection. It's like all these end times events. And then you get another sign. You get like another cryptic sort of Revelation 12 sign. And it's so uncanny. Many other preachers have actually drawn this parallel. So I want you to understand it. 
Um, Isaiah 26, 21, I just want to show you, it's clearly talking about the second coming of Christ when he comes back in judgment. It says, Behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal her bloodshed, will no longer cover the slain. It says, you know, hide yourself, the indignation, uh, hide yourself until the indignation runs its course. So clearly end times eschatological event here. And then look, Isaiah 27, 1, it says, in that day, um, it says, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. So that word Leviathan, it can mean monster, sea monster, dragon. It specifically can mean dragon. Look it up on Bible Hub. The fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Even Leviathan, that twisted serpent. And this is incredible. He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Remember that, because we're about to bring up Revelation 